The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Right now in fast fears, building about the trouble ahead in the $20 trillion commercial real estate market with office space in major cities sitting empty. The economy slowing and prices for many of the major REITs getting rocked. It has one of our traders wondering if the sector is so bad, it's good. Plus, search substitute shares of Alphabet falling on worries that Samsung could hang up on Google and switch to Bing for its mobile phones. What kind of dent would this have on Alphabet search dominance? And later, Merck's $11 billion biotech buy, Nordstrom swoosh-related surge, and Netflix chilled ahead of tomorrow's results. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq Markets. I had full house here tonight. Steve Grasso, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Tim Seymour. We start off with that trade that made us go, hmm, someone on this desk dipping their toe in the much beaten down office read space, buying small stakes in a couple of stocks that have already been hit hard this year. Vornado Realty and Boston Properties, though both were up today, they've each lost more than 20 percent in 2023, the two worst performing REITs in the sector, in fact. And both face continued headwinds from the regional banking crisis and the looming recession. So... Karen, yes. what sparked your interest in these two? Well, just the so bad it's good. Like if you thought, where should I short something now? This would come first to mind, right? Which makes me think, all right, it must be really crowded. There's a lot to hate. Sentiment is terrible. We all know the macro interest rates are high. You have debt refinancing coming up. You have uh, work from home. Um, and uh, you have tech companies laying off tons of people. All of that's terrible. And yet... I do feel like maybe it's so bad that it's good. I mean, the stocks have absolutely gotten crushed, and I think they'll bottom before the actual business turns. So that's one thing to like about it. It's interesting to me also that new money is coming into distressed real estate space, right? So you had Blackstone. I think it was a $20 billion fund. I think Double Line started two funds. Um, so that's of interest to me. And I think, you know, the this sort of, I always think of Tim saying, you know, you make the most money when things go from terrible to just bad. So they're deeply in, enmeshed in terrible right now. And I think that the risk reward here is compelling. We know there's debt here. We know that, you know, a lot of bad things, particularly a Vornado, which is very New York centric, very office centric. That's a bad place to be right now. But the stock has lost a quarter century of value. They're back to where they were 25 years ago. Although I do, obviously they have paid dividends all the way along the way. But I think that here, I'm never going to pick the bottom, but it's starting to get interesting. Things could change. I think, you know, Roth is a super smart guy, and he'll come up with something. He's, you know, he's got a big stake here. So all that together, time to start. I'm not going to pick the bottom for sure, but put, some, put my toe in the water. Yeah, you mentioned the, the short interest. Uh, actually, REITs are the most shorted sector on the S&P 500, and the most shorted subsector is office REITs specifically. So maybe the sentiment is so bad that it's time for some sort of a turn. I don't know. And I forgot well, the yield. That, the yield, yeah. yes. Which may or may not happen. No, good, good for Karen. Karen does her work. And, and therefore, you know, I, I 
this isn't just throwing a dart and saying, hey, this is, you know, why not? It's down a lot, so I should probably be by it. I, I also think that if you think about New York City real estate, there's no surprise um, here. And that's well into this price. I mean, what's going on with uh, all the office and the dynamics from work from home, I think, are in New York City. It's interesting when you look at the REIT space, obviously, you need to look at the underlying and, and really what you're investing in. So if you look at an SPG or Simon Property Group, I mean, Look, blue chip, uh, best properties in, in certainly in a mall space where um, a very different dynamic, although some of the same secular trends have been going on as well. People have been leaving the malls. They've been going into the open air. There's a discretionary element of what's going on. Uh, Simon Property, there's, you know, the, the short interest is, I don't know, less than 2%. Um, it's down small on the year. It pays a nice div. And, and to me, this is, again, a case where do they have pricing power? Do they not? Um, it, it just seems to me it's been an outperformer in a difficult environment. And that's a place I feel safe, again, based upon we've heard this story about what's going on at the mall over and over again. Yeah. Can you have, though, you know, a really let's say there's a really hard recession and there is a crunch in lending to commercial real estate in general. Can you have a crunch in the bottom tiers of commercial real estate and not have that crunch in the top tier, uh, even if it's blue chip? I'd be very surprised. I mean, like, I, listen, I don't know jack about this sector. I'll just say this, but I'd be absolutely surprised to see if these stocks bottomed before we have a recession, okay? Like, like given the different dynamics that we have right now, and then when you talk about where rates are, you talk about cost of capital, you talk about all the debt. So to me, I, I don't find it that compelling. I'd let, rather buy any one of your money center banks that, that were down 15% than this right now. like those. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think, the, I, I think um, I'm somewhere in the middle on this uh, between Dan and Karen and and you know uh, Tim was more on Karen's side the problem is the reset of the loans how much is coming reset well I Vornado, I think 2024 is the first major one of the of their corporate debt yeah but you know the properties are ring fenced so if they default on one it's not going to take the whole thing down yeah so this so the problem is most of these things don't trade outside they they trade as a block so if 1.6 or 1.5 trillion is being reset over the next year and a half, it'll drag the entire space down, guilty by association. So that would be the reason down. why I would. Yeah. Oh, oh no, definitively. But when you when you keep spreading that chart out, stocks can always go lower. So so to Tim's point, I don't know if picking the bottom is the right thing. I don't think you said that. We want to scale into yes. something, start buying something. Now I don't I don't disagree with that. You, you're getting a yield on it, and all of these names have guided lower. So that's already in the price, and they definitely kitchen sinked last year because they were all beaten up last year. So a lot of that is already in the price, so I, I don't disagree. You know what that. else is in the price? are interest rates. I mean, the, the, the biggest story, and I realize that's part of you know, the whole fundamental bottom-up here, but, but a lot of this is just an interest rate move. If you look at, at REITs and utilities and the moves, that uh, the biggest move in some of the names we're just talking about happened from January of 22, um, really through kind of the, the, the end of last year. And all of that was pricing in lower interest rates, uh, excuse me, higher interest mm -hmm. rates. And I think that's the story as much as any. I realize that's also a dynamic of asset allocation. You've seen a lot of people find other places to go get the yields they were getting from REITs. At this point, again, I think you're going to see people stepping back into that. And they, they took a leg down after SVB as well. Yeah. So, which, you know, anything financially related did. But I don't know. So a lot of negative things altogether. So many bad ones make me think. It reminds me when oil just got absolutely slaughtered. And remember that contract that went negative and that was sort of the bottom and things were terrible. It's, it's possible to thread the needle on this trade. The problem is we're going to be talking about commercial real estate resetting for the next six months. 
and it's going to be front and center. So while I think a lot of it is factored into the names, I think you have to be really quick on this trade. So do you think that we need to see some sort of a, a bottom where the worst is behind us for regional banks in order to have a recovery in any way, shape or form in commercial real estate? I think that would help. I think that a stabilization of rates would help also. And I think if there were any deals that got done, commercial mortgage-backed securitization is dead right now. If you start to see any deals come in and any properties trade, there are no properties trading in New York. Anything like that, I think, would be some life. Yeah. But in terms of the, the crunch that we were talking about before, and if credit really seizes up for the lower tiers. It's seized up already. For the, the you so, know. So you think that it's not going to have any sort of knock-on impact on blue chip properties. I think blue, so BXP, Boston Properties, is blue chip. I think it's a different, it's a, one Vanderbilt, that building is 100% leased, it's, prices are fantastic. Uh, I think that's an SL Green property, among others. But um, I think for the B and C and D buildings, it's, it's Armageddon. All right, let's get more on the challenges in the office REIT space from Uma Moriarty. She's Senior Investment Strategist at Center Square Investment Management. Uma, great to have you with us. Um, I was reading through a Stiefel note earlier today, and it said that, you know, office REITs specifically don't perform well in a recessionary environment, which is where we are right now. So will this time be different? Thanks for having me. And a lot of what you have been talking about with this group of people, right, so far in terms of the impact of the REITs what that has done from a repricing perspective, thinking about the utilization of office as we think about work from home, there are a lot of different factors building into office in addition to a recession. On the REIT side though, we've talked about this a little bit here, it's already been repriced, right? It has, we've felt a lot of that pain already come through for publicly traded REITs in the office space. The important thing to remember though, as we think about commercial real estate broadly and the REIT space broadly, Office is only 3% of the overall investable universe for REITs. There are so many other areas in commercial real estate, call it industrial, uh, single family rentals, healthcare, data centers, a lot of these areas with really fantastic structural demand tailwinds that will help really offset the impacts of the economic recession. So office is definitely one thing, but we have the other 97% of the commercial real estate space across REITs. That's really interesting today. Office seems to have taken it the hardest, Uma. I mean, the two that Karen actually bought small stakes in are the worst performers in the in the REIT sector in the first quarter. So I'm wondering, would you would you be more inclined to put fresh money into, you know, the storage space, for instance, which has done much better? So as it relates to the storage space, right, we have seen a very different dynamic play out as it relates to pricing over the three plus years, right? So call it since COVID. Within storage, very different than what you've seen across office. These office REITs are down, call it 50, 60%, trading at very, very deep discounts to their valuations on the private side. And so that creates an interesting opportunity for investors that are looking to deploy new capital today, right? So if you have the option to deploy that capital across the, the listed market where you've been already repriced and significantly more de-risked from a valuation perspective compared to the private market, your incremental dollar is much better invested today in that listed REIT space. Uma, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. And putting it in, in terms that I think, at least for a guy like me who doesn't spend all day 
in REITs and maybe for some of our audience. Going back to kind of the factory of, of you know, building of a REIT and the dynamic around higher interest rates, I would just get back to a lot of these trades just don't work. So think about um, you know, forever when rates were at zero, it made a lot of sense to go out and buy property and to be in a long duration asset, et cetera, et cetera. How much does this dynamic of rate change just change structurally uh, it, the return profile of some of these office REITs? Great question. You know, that's something that we've been thinking about a lot here. And I think broadly speaking, our, you know, our estimate is that we're really past this kind of free money era that we've been experiencing for the last decade plus. It means that you have to reprice real estate for it to make sense in terms of an investment, right? We've seen that already happen across the REIT space, which means it's a really attractive investment today for us as we think about where prices have already been reset. You talk about office here, the yield on these properties across these office portfolios on average today in the REIT market is about 10%. When you've got rates on the interest rate side at call it six, six and a half, even 7%, that still makes a little bit of sense. But on the private market, you're still looking at yields on these properties priced as they are today below 5%. And that's where the math kind of stops working. And so as long as you've got the pricing right in this new rate environment that we're living in, real estate makes a lot of sense. And we've seen that happen across the REIT space today. Uma, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Let me ask you something in terms of sentiment to the space. Are you seeing any change in, you know, it's been absolutely toxic, don't touch it, but are you, I'm wondering if you're seeing any change. Great question. And to your point, there has just been so much bad press, right? The headlines all about commercial real estate, how that's such in, in such trouble. And that's where we kind of go back to and talk to our clients a lot about what's actually out there in the commercial real estate space, especially across REITs that are currently priced in a way that makes them fairly de-risked. We're talking about areas that have a lot of great demand tailwinds that should do really well. And that's 97% of the US listed REIT space, right? So areas like data centers, as you think about what's really happening out there from the perspective of AI, chat GPT, that requires a ton of computing power that's going through these data centers. They're seeing pricing power unlike they have seen in the last 25 years today. And that's a really great opportunity across the REIT space, right? So you're seeing a lot of these areas in the REIT space that you want to be cognizant of, want to have exposure to as investors, looking for some of the stability that you get from the real estate asset class, but in the REIT market today at a much better price. Hey, Uma, real quickly, you mentioned um, the private REIT market, and I saw a chart today earlier showing that just kind of like the public markets, what they've done this time. We all know that. That's what we've been talking about. You just mentioned private, and they are not marked to market. Is there a potential knock-on effect when the private market stuff gets repriced um, more in line with the public markets? Absolutely. You're going to see a couple different impacts of that play out, right? So you're going to see transaction markets finally open up when you have some sort of price discovery on the private market side. Everybody knows that the assets are valued too high. They need to come down, but you're still seeing a pretty big bid-ask spread, which means that transactions are pretty much at a standstill. So until you start to see some of that price discovery happen in the private market, you're not really going to see a lot of movement from a capital perspective, but there is so much capital waiting on the sidelines to be deployed today across the real estate space. And so once we see that price discovery actually happen in the market, I think a lot of that capital is really going to come into the space and provide a little bit of support from the perspective of valuations. Uma, thanks. Appreciate it. Uma Moriarty, Center Square. Um, so why did REITs rally today? Because regional banks were up today? 
because the banking sector is up today? I mean, interest rates are, have also been been higher. I mean, there's yeah. some sense that we we're, we're seeing uh, the yield curve stabilize a little bit. And again, that pricing discovery dynamic. I mean, it, it is fascinating to think about tons and a wall of money sitting on the sidelines waiting to deploy. And we hear this in VC. We hear this in private equity. Um, it, it just seems like it is a different world. Yeah. Coming up, a search switcheroo. Shares of Alphabet dropping as Samsung weighs a replacement for Google and Microsoft's Bing is looking like a top contender. What it could all mean for these companies next. Plus, a fired-up biotech deal. Merck scooping up one name for a whopping $11 billion. And the heads of both companies are weighing in on the deal. So what do they say? We'll have that when Fast Money returns. Back in two. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Buzzkill on Alphabet shares dropping more than 2% on a New York Times report that Samsung is considering switching its default mobile search engine from Google to Microsoft's Bing. Alphabet seeing its worst day in more than two months. Let's get to Steve Kovac, who's got the details. Steve. Yeah, Mel, Alphabet did fall today after that New York Times report, saying Samsung at least thought about changing the default search engine on its phones to Bing from Google after seeing Microsoft's chatbot in action. That reportedly set up a scramble within Google to get its own chatbot, which it calls Bard, integrated into Google Search. Now, here's how these search deals work, Mel. Google shares search ad revenue with companies like Samsung and Apple if they make Google the default search engine. And it's a lucrative business, too. Apple reportedly gets about $20 billion a year from Google, making up a big chunk of its services business. Samsung gets a few billion a year. Though Samsung seems to be sticking with Google, the notion there's a better alternative out there gives more leverage to companies like Samsung and Apple to negotiate better terms, or Google risks losing its position to Microsoft. That means more upside for the platforms and more costs for Google. Now, it's still early. Google has already said it plans to integrate BARD into Google Search, and if it can pull that off, it may be able to stave off any threats to its dominance in search. Mel, I'll send it back to you. Steve, you use the word scramble to yeah. integrate BARD into Google. Is that your word or is that a word from the New York Times? It just it reminds me of when they were scrambling to get BARD and launch that. That's I mean, right. It, it's it the sort same of brings scramble. back yeah. that. Yeah. It, it reminded me when the New York Times reported this, it reminded me of what we heard several months ago when everyone was talking about ChatGPT and Sergey and Larry, the founders of the company, had to kind of come in and say, hey, guys, we need to get on this. This is part of that scramble, Mel. All right. Steve, thanks. You got it. Steve Kovac. Um, Karen, you watched yeah. this on our Pichai interview with 60 Minutes. Right. 
How much of that is part of this move lower, do you think? It wasn't great. I mean, I also was wondering, did was, you know, just the way the, the BARD introduction was sort of a flop, but if you went back and look at, looked at the <clears throat> chat GPT being one, in hindsight, it wasn't so great either. I think that was, I don't know, it, it, I, I was surprised at how seemingly nonchalant he seemed about, wow, could this really spin out of control? You know, do we even know what the implications of this technology is. And he didn't seem to have great answers for that. I wonder if it was maybe edited in a way that wasn't so flattering to him. Nonetheless, he didn't do a great job, I felt, in that interview, which is too bad. And then on top of that, the Samsung news, which even though the dollars aren't that much, it's this idea of the impenetrability of Google's, you know, moat. Right. And if that... And and perception is reality, where they were thought to be the king of the hill on top of it. That's why the Bard flop was so surprising to me, because they're usually so ready for every task. And I think it really cast dispersions on them that maybe they're not as good as people think they are. So I kind of agree with both of what you're saying. I think about this as Samsung is less than three billion in terms of revs for Google. Apple is so if, if you've now casts some shadow over how impenetrable Google is, Apple's the one you worry about. Apple is north of 20 billion in revenues for them, and despite the fact that their 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 track traffic acquisition costs have been going down, and it's, it's been a very good trend for them, especially because of mobile. Um, Apple really controls the shots here, and as they do in so many places. By the way, it's an, a, a topic for another show, but I mean it's one of the reasons why I think you know Apple is gets into anti-monopoly territory because they are so dominant for so many different people. They can do whatever they want if they wanted to 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 get into this business themselves, uh, you know, and. I don't think they're going to. But Apple, I worry about, even though um, maybe you don't have to worry about it because Samsung's not that big of a deal right now. Maybe this is more of a Microsoft story. I mean, if Microsoft captures just a tiny increment of the Google search, that goes straight. I mean, that's basically it's just additional revenue, right? Yeah, no, they, already, they already have Microsoft stock already has captured, you know, Google stock has has no AI in it. Right. Microsoft, I think, is a lot. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I mean, I, th- I think we've talked about it around the edges. It would be great for Microsoft. But as far as Google's concerned, I mean, like, uh, like here's the bigger issue. Um, in 2015, they had 79% gross margins. They're expected to have 60% gross margins this year. So you talk about moats, you talk about monopolies. It's already been, been chipped at for a while now. And so could you see further margin, you know, margin degradation if they start losing pricing power? Because that, if that is what Steve just mentioned this all about, now that you have a good, even if you don't think you would even use them, why wouldn't you go and try to make that threat? You know what I mean? And so um, to me, that's the issue with Google. And I know that you know, a lot of you guys will say it's really cheap relative to the mega caps. It's expected to grow you know, double digit earnings and sales. It's trading about 20 times this year, 17 next. If those margins remain under pressure, it's going to look expensive pretty quickly. But one last thing. Maybe maybe the big takeaway from this is how important artificial intelligence is, because that's what this decision was probably made on. And things don't happen immediately in 30 seconds. This was uh, on the basis of BARD, the BARD flop. And now we're seeing companies, company by company, starting to factor in how much artificial intelligence actually has the finger on the scale. It's not ready for prime time yet. But certainly it's, it's entered into the calculus of these yeah, corporations. There could be a lot riding on it. All right. A lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Merck making moves. The drug maker scooping up one biotech name. And the news has shares skyrocketing. 
what the CEOs are saying about the deal next. Plus, can stocks look past an economic downturn? Our next guest, ready to tell us how the markets can turn a blind eye to any coming recession. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money, a drug deal on Wall Street. Well, a pharma deal, at least. Merck buying Prometheus Biosciences for nearly $11 billion. The CEO is appearing on Mad Money with Jim Cramer tonight. Here's what they had to say about the merger. One of the things that really attracted us to, to Prometheus was the fact that they had the, the Prometheus 360 biobank. And just to give a sense of what this is, it's basically over 200,000 tissue samples across 20,000 patients who have suffered from IBD, and it allows you to look at the genetics and match the genetic markers to the disease, which allows us to do better jobs of picking patients and driving how we prioritize and ultimately study and bring new therapies forward. Of course, IBD being irritable bowel syndrome. Be sure to catch that full interview top of the hour on Mad Money. Let's trade it. <laughs> when he said, when the Merck CEO said the reason why we're we're looking at this. I thought he was going to say because Keytruda loses patent protection in 2028, because that's, that's, that's the a huge reason why they're looking to do a deal. And they're, they're 43%, I think, is the exact number uh, that, that they're levered to uh, revenues as far as they're Apology. dependent on them. And they're segueing away from that. But Keytruda is definitely their, their goldmine that is losing the patent protection. I think the real takeaway for me is the XBI, because now you're going to see we hear about these marquee deals. We don't hear about the little deals that will be tucked in along the way. XBI is underperformed. I think this shines a light on that. I'd be a buyer of that. Yeah, it's funny because Keytruda was another one of those acquisitions, though, that people thought was way overpaid by Merck, and, and it paid for itself. And, and I hear you, and they have to replace an asset, so here they go. I don't think anybody questions that it's not a great asset and a great area to be, of growth to be in. But the question is, how much did they pay? And at what point is it accretive to, to EPS? And at what point, you know, Merck, which is uh, certainly trades at a premium to some of the other uh, big cap pharma peers. I, I'm long Merck. I'm very happy. Uh, but, it, you know, I think that's really the dynamic. Did they pay too much? That's the only criticism here. And in the past, um, a couple of these acquisitions have proven to not be, uh, you know, the, the thing that was taking them down was the price. And to prove to be fine. But you're okay with the price I'm, as a Merck shareholder. You know, I, what do I say? You know, I, I don't they don't know. have they any know. approved drugs. But they, they this is a there's a price it becomes a creative in two any years. Approved they drugs. But it's I mean, Merck is, you know, almost a three hundred billion dollar company, so that eleven million dollar eleven billion dollar deal, how badly could they go wrong, right? Even if it went to zero, it's not so but Merck, which I own also because started when it was the PE was really low. It's actually appreciated quite a bit now. I mean, this I don't think changes the uh, calculus for me at the moment, but I don't know what to make of it, to be honest. All right. 
Coming up, the nitty-gritty on Netflix. Results due out after the bell tomorrow, but is this name still a good place to invest? We'll dig into that trade ahead. But first, could stocks ignore a recession? It's happened once before. RBC's Lori Calvacino will join us next to lay out how markets can deal with a downturn. More on that when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on the markets today. Stocks uh, staging a late-day rally with major indices all managing to end the day in the green. The S&P now up five of the last six days. And Nordstrom shares jumping as much as 7% on news that a former Nike exec is joining the company's board. And after hours of watching J.B. Hunt dropping after the company missed in the top and the bottom lines, lower demand, lower prices, higher costs, all blamed for this shortfall. Um, what did you make of this Nordstrom jump, Karen? I think it's, I mean, it seems good, right? This yeah. is someone who clearly has great retailing experience. Is it enough to change the whole no. dynamic? I don't think so. Come on. I mean, it doesn't change. <laughs> it's it, dismissive, too. Yeah. Well, look, as someone that's been happy to trade in department stores, Macy's specifically, I, I, but, but part of it really is just a misperception about what the valuation is and even solvency in the case of some of these things. Doesn't ch- I don't think you can have a miracle that changes it for department stores. What would you make of the market action overall? I hated it. S&P with like 25 handles and like the, I was doing something, I look away, I'm doing, and then I look up, yeah, and it's closed up to high, it looks like parabolic. I'll say this, um, the high of the year is 4195 from early February, we've been in this range 3800 to 4195 It really doesn't feel, given what we saw on Friday out of the banks and the way that J.P. Morgan reacted, and you know, I really feel like if we can't have a string of groups that really outperform expectations, I don't really see the S&P breaking out in a meaningful And it's got to be one string, the technology space, large cap tech, because everything else can't lift enough to get the market. Well, they're underperforming, though. I mean, if you if you look at the queues and if you look at the semis, they're actually underperforming the S&P for the last three weeks, which to me is something you have to be watching. And and as someone that, you know, just has believed that as long as they're outperforming the S&P, you own the market. The opposite is also true. We're getting a lot more bank earnings in the coming days. Is that going to sound some sort of all clear at all in your mind, Karen? Well, tomorrow we have Bank America, which yeah. is a very big one for sure. I think, though, the J.P. Morgan quarter, I, I think that anyone's going to be hard-pressed to have a better quarter than that. But doesn't that make you nervous? Okay, like, so again, like, so J.P. Morgan, expectations were low. It sold off a lot. It goes up 7 8% in a straight line on one piece of news, and it kind of held those games. More than one. Fine. But, okay, but, but, yeah. but, like, if we can all agree that the economy probably doesn't get better from here over the next six months, that, that would be, I, I don't know, maybe that's just You think there's consensus. a drinking game whenever you're negative, someone takes a drink? <laughs> because that would be a great, that would be a great. Well, listen, I, you know, most people are always positive. So, I, you know, let, let's figure out how things go. I mean, the way I'm thinking about it is, is like, I just don't see a lot of what we're saying is relative to expectations, right? Right. And And you're saying Bank of America's expectations are a little higher Well, what I'm saying, who cares? Because what I'm saying is three months from now, if we really do see like tighter credit conditions, if we see rates stay high, if we see stagflationary environment because it's inflation is not coming down as much as possible, this is just, we see uh, unemployment start ticking up. It's just not going to be a good environment. And I think that the banks might have just shown you as good as it gets for 2023. All right. Well, the stock uh, market right now might 
be ignoring all warnings of a recession. According to our next guest, it's not the first time that's happened. Lori Calvacina is head of RBC's U.S. Equity Strategy. She joins us here on set. So this goes perfectly into the question that prompted you to write the note, and that is, has the stock market ever priced in a recession before it's happened? Right. And we've been getting that questions from investors who are frankly, you know, I think sort of feel like Dan, but are looking at the market action and saying, why are we higher? What's the bull case? And we kind of walk people through what we think the bull case is. But and then people say, OK, fine, but we haven't even seen the recession start yet. So how can we possibly have priced it in? And look, we've gone back and said it would be, you know, it'd be odd. Um, but there's some precedent for it. If you go back and look at the history books, if you go all the way back to 1945, that was the recession coming out of World War II. Stock market just marched through. It. It's the only recession where it's essentially been ignored. And I think that there are a lot of differences between today and that time period, but there's some similarities as well. So that's the only instance? That's the only instance. <laughs> that's, that's all you got? That could be <laughs> <laughs> that's not convincing to me if it's one instance in such a long time period and there are notable differences between that period and this period. Well, I think what's interesting is people say, we've never done this. And I'm like, well, we've never done this, but we have done something kind of similar. And the thing that's similar is that you had this massive decline in the market ahead of it, about a 43% drop early on in the war. And actually, even after you had the mid-war bottom, you saw a 13% drawdown in 1943. The recession was not till 1945. And when I was researching this, I actually found some interesting terms that were similar. It was described as a technical recession just being driven by the fact that the wartime economy was shutting down and we were pivoting to a peacetime economy. So this kind of idea of a manufactured recession that we were all talking about last year, you actually had it back then. Also COVID. I mean, what, what, what are we calling that, right? Yeah, right. I mean, that was, that was so much like a war economy, if you think yeah. about it. And, and Yeah, but we threw $6 trillion at it. And that's why we had a rip-roaring market in 2021 and 2022. And look at what expected growth is. Look at where inflation has gone and likely to stay elevated relative to that. Look at what the, the prior 10 years that we had a GDP to the pandemic, we averaged 2.2%. And we're not likely to get meaningfully above that with higher prices and rates are going to reset higher. So to me, I, I mean, I don't see anything about that comparison that makes any sense given where we are right now. And I think the pandemic th really Look at you. You're just, looking at me. Why, why are you looking at me like that? Why are you looking at me like that? Oscar the Grouch. I would add on the spending, though. Yeah. If you go back again to this 1945 example, yeah. you had massive government resources that went to fuel the wartime machine, and that was pulled back in a hurry. We're kind of doing something similar this yeah. time around, both on the fiscal side and the monetary side. Also, unemployment managed to stay very strong back then, and that's kind of the other head-scratcher in this environment. Yeah. How in the world is it... Has it stayed so strong? Yeah, but you don't really believe that. You're just playing devil's advocate right now, right? Oh. Well, see, I actually, I'm think, just, I'm just saying, I actually <laughs> think that we priced in a recession back at the October lows, but I think people are tired of hearing that. And, yeah. you know, I had to have something else to talk about, frankly. And, it's just, <laughs> you know, the idea that, you know, people keep saying, well, we've never done this. We've never done this. It's like we've done something. So why similar. would they have priced it in this time then? Because I, I, that may be right. In other words, and everyone's also saying, get me back to 3,600 on the S&P and I'm a buyer with two hands. And I don't think they're going to be on the way down if other than, well, Dan, Dan maybe, because he'll be Cover covering short. short. There we go. He'll be covering short. But, but why would we have priced it in when, in fact, it's the same question. We haven't done this before. I hear you, and this time feels so different on so many different vectors. We, we haven't seen the Fed hike this aggressively. We haven't come out of a, a place where the economy was, was, was waking up. But 
again, why would we do that now? Well, look, we did it back in October. And if you think about what was driving us to those October lows, it was, oh, my God, the Fed is tightening. It's all these big, chunky hikes. We're going to have to have a recession. It was literally the Fed and fears of the Fed causing a recession that drove us to that point. The other thing we saw pretty clearly was over the summer, the small caps were baking in a recession. They were baking in an ISM down around 39, if you look at the manufacturing gauge. And valuations were literally at the rock bottom of the historical range. So if you look through that lens first, it makes a little bit more sense that the S&P just had to catch up to where the Russell was over the summer. But given all this, you're not like a screaming bull here. No. In markets at all. No, I'm a, I'm a 4,100 target, and I see yeah. plenty of challenges. Um, you know, I think we continue to be worried about the debt ceiling causing some drama this summer. Um, we think the market is looking ahead to a 2024 recovery. We think that's going to be debated. My colleagues in rate strategy think the conversation about terminal isn't dead yet. So I do see some challenges, but that doesn't make me an uber bear, and I'm kind of getting accused of being a, a bull by default. Right. Oh, she actually wrote that just to stir Dan up. Yeah. By the way, Everything. can I get one more in? The Russell still stinks. Like, literally, it rallied a little bit today. I'm just saying, like, I'm looking at the Russell 2000. Small caps act like death. They are. But, you know, the, the banks are starting to show some stabilization in performance. They're trying. I think if the banks can stabilize, I think you'll see the small caps stabilize as well. A lot of the small cap price action, initially it was biotech stocks whipping it around, then it was the banks. Um, but you're starting to see the big cap growth trade underperform a little bit, and that gives me hope that the small caps are going to start to be the source of that rotation again. Lori, thank you. Lori Calvacina, RBC. What do you think, Russell? So I, I could see the, the event in October pricing in the recession, even if we weren't calling it a recession. If people were looking for 220 in S&P earnings, if you took it down from, from the peak, you took it down to 180 in the S&P, and you slap a 20 times multiple on that, that'll get you to that 3,600 level. Because if you're looking at where interest rates were and where they're going, you put, what are we trading at, 18 and a half, 19 times right now? So you would put a 20 on a lower rate environment going forward. As rates come in, you put a higher multiple on it. So I can see that, I could see that maybe we priced it in. And to Lori's point, we were talking about an earnings recession. So when Tim asked her, why would we have done that? Because the conversation du jour was about an earnings recession going forward. So everyone ratcheted down their estimates on the S&P. So I think right now, we're probably at 200 in the S&P going forward. And I think we're probably there. Yeah. I mean, that's what Lori's estimates were for, for this year. We, we ratcheted down expectations by 6% year to date on the S&P 500 in terms of earnings. The, the only thing about all this, though, is we haven't seen the job market right. change. And, and the best days of the job market are behind us. I, you know, until the consumer stops having a job, um, I think earnings are going to be okay. And I, I, I just, the Fed has two mandates. They are trying to knock down the labor market, and they, they've really only begun to start so whether they overshoot it or either way, I just think that the labor market is kind of the key. All right. Coming up, going green and seeing green, we're taking a look at one under the radar sector that is building gains. Yep, that was a clue. We'll bring you the details in the trades ahead. But first, Netflix on deck. Which direction will the stock be streaming in after its reports? Uh, we will hit the options pits next. Stick around. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Netflix reporting results after the bell tomorrow with its new ad-supported tier, password sharing, and of course, subscriber counts squarely in focus. It was a year ago that Netflix reported its first drop in users since 2011. It has since recovered those subs, but will it keep its momentum? Tim, what do you say? 
I think they keep the momentum if they continue to show free cash flow and operating income. So the expectations they're going to do a billion six ish. Um, and I think that's it. I, I, they're actually the, the one thing that's always been a constant for Netflix, even when people were questioning subs and saturation and whatnot, was that they're they're. Their pipeline, their content was very strong. There's actually been some slightly weaker metrics coming out on their top 10 and, and some of the engagement. But I think it really gets back to, our, our, is this company making money? And, and I think they're being rewarded for it in a way that others in the streaming space cannot. I think the expectations on subs is high. I think it's a pretty, it's a pretty decent hurdle to clear. Yeah, and the last quarter was so good. I think expectations are high. So I am long. It's not a huge position. I'm a little nervous that expectations are high and they have to do even better to clear that bar. And because it's not, it's it's cheaper than it was for sure, but it's not absolutely cheap. Right. Tomorrow's results stirring up some action in the options pits as well. Mike has got the details. Mike. Yeah, so the options market right now implying a move of about 9% higher or lower by the end of the week after they report earnings. Although it seems that some traders are betting that they're actually going to three-peat, looking for much bigger moves, much like the ones that we saw over the last two reported quarters. The most active contract were the April 382.5 calls. We saw over 10,000 of those trade for just under 2 bucks a contract. Buyers of those calls are betting that the stock could be 15% higher or more by the end of the week. That is the kind of move that we saw the last two reported quarters. All right. Thank you, Mike. For more options action, tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, President Biden's plans to reduce inflation are unlocking billions of dollars of potential in one area of the economy. We'll bring you the under the radar boom and how to play it next. Back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Clean energy jobs and an electric vehicle push have been key areas of focus in the Inflation Reduction Act, but tens of billions of dollars in incentives are on the table for a lesser-known beneficiary. The building sector and green-focused companies are poised to benefit. Pippa Stevens is here to break it all down. Hey, Pippa. Hey, Melissa. Well, building and industrial companies are probably not the first thing that come to mind when you think about who benefits from the Inflation Reduction Act and the some $370 billion it earmarks for green initiatives. But buildings are roughly 40% of the U.S.'s total energy consumption, and so it is a key focus for decarbonization. The climate bill contains incentives for more energy-efficient HVACs, including heat pumps, as well as credits for better insulated homes, since that cuts energy demand. Now, in terms of who benefits, companies like Train Technologies and Carrier, Carrier Global make HVAC systems, while material companies installed building products and top builds could see an increase in demand for their insulation products, both in terms of new builds and retrofits. But more broadly, the energy efficiency push means heightened focus on building management systems, things like turning off the lights and AC when no one's in a room. Honeywell, Johnson Controls, and Schneider Electric all offer these products that help occupants better understand and therefore manage their energy needs. Melissa, back to you. Pippa, thanks. Pippa Stevens. Tim, you in some of these names? Train. And I, I, you know, some of them have been great long-term holdings because a couple of these in, in that space, which are also in your home builders ETF folks, have, have, have performed over a couple of years. If you look at some of these names, though, they really fell when you had this run in at Silicon Valley Bank, which is kind of strange, except for a lot of industrial companies were hit massively. Um, I, I can't really speak to what they're doing on the green side. I can certainly speak to the efficiency of their business and the margins that they're performing at. And it's not expensive here. So I think in a world where we had uh, a lot of pressure on these types of companies, Companies, especially out of supply chain, I think this is weakness you're buying. Karen? 
I, I've always sort of liked the industrial space. Um, and so, I don't know, I, I, I don't own any of the names listed there, but I, I do own Home Depot and Lowe's. They're all related, but I don't own these. Kind of thinking maybe I should. Yeah, I feel like when, whenever you start buying things on a premise, I, I had a premise on the infrastructure deal, uh, cutting checks for, for a Caterpillar. We haven't seen that come through positively in the equity price in the stock. I, I do like, as far as the charts, just specifically the charts, train looks like the best chart out of those names that Pippa had mentioned. Uh, the investment in train, though, Tim, I mean, is this a booster? Is the IRA a booster to this trade that you already like? I, I wouldn't be putting that in as something that would be expanding the multiple or make me excited about it. But, I, you know, again, whether it's ESG, whether it's, you know, things that have been inducements to go buy companies, I just don't think so. Um, and that's not how I'm investing. I would be investing on a bottom-up basis here. All right. Coming up next, Final Trades. We are now in the thick of earnings season. We've got a lot on tap tomorrow. And tomorrow specifically, we're going to get a big read on a lot of the banks. Uh, we've got Goldman Sachs. We've got Bank of America. Uh, we've also got First Horizon, Western Alliance. So a lot of the regionals will report too. Karen, you're focused on Bank of America, yes. I presume. Bank of America, that's right. I mean, I, I don't think they're going to have as good net interest margin beat as uh, J.P. Morgan, probably by a wide margin. But still, it's not expensive. And we'll really get a sense of how they feel about the economy and the consumer they're very plugged into the consumer. Yeah. Do you think it's going to be anything different from what Jamie Dimon said, which is basically the consumer's in good shape? I, I think they have similar exposures. Uh-huh. Um, but, it, you know, what we're not going to hear that from is from Goldman Sachs and, and Morgan Stanley. And, and that's great because, in fact, these are businesses. We know what happened to investment banking. We know it lagged. We know debt capital markets were terrible. But, but they don't have the same net interest income exposure, and, and yet they were sold off as if they did. So we, I, I think it's been flagged what, what's going on. I think they're both worth owning into these numbers. 1695. That's where the VIX closed, people. I know. Isn't that crazy? Have at it. I'm just buy whatever you want Drink. throughout earnings season. Have Drink. at it. 1695. Why do you think it was so, I mean, that's so complacent. Yeah. You know what complacency uh, Until we start to see these regionals start to report, uh, the, the, the big money center banks are one thing. When we see the regionals start to get their sea legs back, the market will not have an all clear, but a better clear sign. Were you going to say something about the? I was just going to say, I mean, 1695, I mean, it, it's, it's the pain trade. The dynamic here is that's the whole point. I mean, yeah. the market is so positioned for pain that the, the VIX is just kind of sliding lower because I think that's how people uh, have access thing. Final trade time, Steve. XBI on the back of the Merck deal. I think you're starting to see a lot more light shown on these small biotech companies. They've been ignored. It's been a COVID environment. And now I think they're going to get their day. Karen. Yes, two things. Happy birthday, Kate and William. And congratulations to my sister, Stacey Feinerman, running the Boston Marathon, 339. Great time. Dip a toe in the water, or I did anyway today, on Boston Properties, the A-team of Dan. Um, 1695 makes SPY, SPY, that's ETF that tracks S&P 500. The puts look really cheap. Tim. Merck, uh, not cheap relative to peers, but I like it here and I'm long. All right. Thank you all for watching Fast Money. We'll be back here tomorrow at 5 with more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.